welcome to a Friday night edition of Tisky Sour. We have a very big show for you tonight. Massive issues, an energy crisis, football and human rights, Tony Blair's morality, and um, some terrible dad jokes. I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing, Aaron? Michael, I'm, I'm so well. Before we came on air, I mistakenly confused my, my wife's moisturizer for mine. So I, uh, I briefly looked like a ghost. Hopefully over the, over the course of the show, that will... That will somewhat fade. I just thought I'd mention that because I might look somewhat strange. <laughs> I'm I'm really glad you clarified that because I was worried. I thought maybe you were you were under the weather or something. So I'm I'm relieved. First story. On Wednesday, Boris Johnson gave a pun-filled, optimistic speech to the Tory faithful. The party members in the hall loved it, but facing fuel shortages, raising costs increased taxes and cuts to their benefits, the public have been less impressed. YouGov have polled voters on whether the Tories are doing well or badly on the economy, inflation and tax. And these are their answers. It's not looking very good. So YouGov found that 54% of the public think the Tories are doing badly on the economy. That's seven points up from this time last month. When it comes to inflation, 53% think they're handling it badly. That's up 15 points from a month ago. And 60% think the Tories are handling taxation badly. That's up 13 points from a month ago. Biggest jump on taxation was after the Tories announced a hike to national insurance, so the, the biggest hike in, in disapproval of their approach to taxation. Alongside these polls, disquiet at the government's performance was evident last night on Question Time. I think the uh, uni uh, universal credit, uplift and then a downlift, is the most idiotic thing I can imagine. Um, I mean, the government said it, always said it was going to be temporary. Yes, they did. But if you give somebody something and then they get used to it, when you take it away, that is a big blow, especially when you need the money, especially when there's inflation that's going to be rampant in this country over the next few months. Whatever the gas prices, whatever the haulage crisis is, that money should not have been given if it was going to be taken away because it just creates bad feeling and a bad taste in people's mouths. Not only those that have it taken away, but even people like me who don't need it and didn't get it. The most disadvantaged are going to be dreadfully badly hit. And we've had enough of seeing in this country people going to food banks, people living on the streets, people unable able to afford rent. And yet we're still determined to make life even harder for the people who already have it hard. Yesterday, um, the Prime Minister's speech, I think people were hoping for some substance. And all they got was jokes. I'm sorry, but that's offensive. I work in a school, I work in an infant school, we work hard. Our children have been a complete privilege to work with throughout the COVID pandemic and we need help. We need help. We don't want to hear jokes. We want some action. We want some support. Our children deserve better. And to make jokes about things, there are serious things to talk about. There are serious things to do. Start acting. Stop joking. So during that show, the host, Fiona Bruce, kept having to repeatedly say that the audience was checked so as to be balanced. She, she had to awkwardly keep repeating this because there was not a single person in that audience willing to defend the government. As you heard there, one of the biggest concerns raised by the 
Question Time audience was the Tories' £20 cut to universal credit. That's a topic on which Marcus Rashford has now intervened. He spoke to the BBC on Thursday. The, the cost of living has definitely increased. Um, you know, people in household are, are having to decide once it, it reminds me of my situation when I was younger, to be fair. Um, you've got to decide between are you going to eat or are you going to be warm in the house. And these are decisions that you, you don't want people to go through, never mind children. Um, and, you know, there's other stuff. There's the, the price of fuel and um, electricity. And there's actually a shortage in food as it is at the moment anyway, as some of the food banks that I work with are, are experiencing. Um, so there's, there's other things that people are worrying about. And if we can take one less stress off them, it's, it's, it's important. That was once again Marcus Rashford standing up for Britons on, on low incomes from an attack from the Conservatives. Aaron, I want to bring you in on this. We did a show on, on Wednesday about the content of Boris Johnson's speech. That's what commentators have been speaking about all week. Whatever he said, though, whatever a leader says, whatever a prime minister says, it, it, it doesn't matter if what people are noticing is that they've got less money in their pockets than, than they used to have. It, it does seem like he, he should be worried right now. I mean, people have had less money in their pockets for the last 10 years, Michael, since, well, actually for the last 13 years, since 2008. You know, for, for most people, take away asset price inflation when it comes to their homes, in terms of where your wages are going, you know, it hasn't, it hasn't really been a pretty story. So the idea that, well, people are being squeezed, ergo, they're going to not vote Tory anymore is, is mistaken. I'm not, I'm not saying the Tories haven't got problems, they clearly have, but I think that's an erroneous presumption. If you look at, for instance, 2010 to 2014 in particular, you know, the average person in terms of their purchasing power and what they could buy in the economy with their wages was smashed. And actually, what happened electorally? The Tories go from having to be in coalition with the Lib Dems after May 2010. In 2015, they get a majority, Michael. So the idea that that necessarily means major electoral changes positively for Labour, I don't know. However, in the here and now, I agree with you, it's a major problem. Millions of people. Important to say, however, most of them won't vote Tory. Most people on universal credit won't vote Tory. The Tories know that. That's why they're quite happy to smash them. If you get into a, a political debate around this stuff, I think most people would think the Tories are in the wrong. They would agree that the policy shouldn't happen, that there are people being made victims unnecessarily. But again, all of that was true during the 1980s, right? All of that was true, true during Thatcher. All of that was true during austerity. 150,000 people died. According to the Lancet magazine, you can go up or down, but it's approximately that number because of austerity. 120, 150,000 excess deaths, people who wouldn't have died otherwise when they did. So. Uh, the sort of political conclusion, which of course shouldn't be the main point, but it's an important consideration. We're talking about this because it's a current affairs show, is that I don't necessarily think that hits the Tories. I think in the short to medium term, it, it will. I think people clearly aren't going to trust them. However, if you look at polling around, do you trust the Tories in the economy in, in, in May 1997, ahead of May 1997, of course, the Labour Party won a, a massive thankful majority. Polls carried out by Ipsos Mori that year, I think in February, April, gave the Tories a 20-point lead on the economy, Michael. So again, the idea that, oh, they don't look competent, therefore Labour's going to come back just like they did in 1997, some of those parts don't quite fit. I think it's inarguable there is a growing and justified discontent with how the Tories are running things. I think it's also important to say that isn't entirely their fault. It's mostly their fault, not entirely their fault. You know, China is having similar issues, for instance, with regards to energy shortages. 
we're having massive issues around supply and demand of energy for a whole bunch of reasons. Russian geopolitics, China moving from from coal to natural gas, and of course, increased demand from China for natural gas pushes up the price for Europeans, etc. It's mostly on the Tories, however. So I think how Boris Johnson number 10 will look at this is we can weather this. If we can weather this through to spring, we should be fine. However, it's, it's perfectly possible that there is a, a massive breakthrough in terms of the, the public's understanding of the Conservatives and Boris Johnson, and they, they basically lose the confidence of the electorate. That is very possible, but, but the idea it's inevitable, I think, is mistaken. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's inevitable. I suppose, a, I think the comparison with the 2010s and the 1980s is, is interesting because they were, I mean, especially the 2010s, that was a, a period when average wages plummeted, median wages plummeted. And yet, as you say, the Tories got a majority. I suppose you could say a difference between then and now is a couple of things. So one, then, the, the story the Tories were telling was the reason you are having to tighten your belts is because of what Labour have done. We're doing this for a reason. Actually, austerity is good. Whereas now, Boris Johnson is saying, guys, you, you can all be richer now. I'm, I'm going to bring about a new, a new economy where you've got higher wages. And what people are actually noticing is, wait a minute, but I'm, I'm a thousand pounds a year poorer. You know, th there's a mismatch there. And I'd say the other thing that's potentially different between the 2010s and now is while it is overstated, the Tories' electoral coalition has changed, right? So, so in 2010, the voting coalition for David Cameron was wealthy people, middle-class people, Remainers, Leavers, liberal rich people, and conservative rich people voted for David Cameron and George Osborne. Mm. Now you do have a different electoral geography where there are, I would presume, quite a lot of people actually on universal credit who voted for Brexit and then voted Conservative in, in 2019, who I'd have thought are a more important voting base for the Tories right now than the people who George Osborne hammered in the 2010s. I mean, there's, there's a few things. So firstly, if you look at actually the sort of the most difficult periods in recent history for the British economy, 1979 to 1981, it took a battering. It took a battering. I think unemployment doubled. You had, again, just a smashing of people's living standards because there was a real, there was an intentional shock coming to the system. This time it's not so intentional. I mean, you could say Brexit's intentional, of course, but all these other after effects aren't intentional. They're consequences of Brexit. After 79, what Thatcher was doing was a very intentional shock to remake, reforge the British economy. Living standards were destroyed for many people. What happens in 1983? Of course, you get the Falklands. Of course, you get the, the, the moronic, historically stupid and fateful decision of the Social Democratic Party to break from the Labour Party, but they get uh, an even bigger majority in 83. So there, are, there aren't many examples, actually, in recent history of a major crisis and a, a, a mass switch against from the governing party. There just aren't. You could point to 1979, of course, and say, well, look, you have the winter of discontent. Of course, the 70s were a, a period of crisis. But even then, the Labour majority going into 79 was, was tiny, you know, it was single figures. Uh, and then the Tories sort of turn that round. So uh, again, there's no recent, there's no recent example. Of course, of course, that might that might be changed. You know, history is there to be rewritten. Of course, uh, but but I, I don't think. Oh well, you know, if if things go like they have in the past, that means that the the Conservatives are really going to get hammered as a result. I, I don't think that. I think you've got the examples there. Like I say, seventy nine to eighty one. You've got the early nineteen nineties. You've got the twenty tens, and the twenty tens were horrific. And Michael, you're saying, well. There wasn't the offer of something more positive. In both the early 1980s and the 2010s, I actually had the same story we're hearing now. You, as the British electorate, will have to endure temporary pain for long-term gain. Now, the question is, can Boris Johnson convincingly sell that? I agree with you. It's going to be very hard to do, particularly when you've just had austerity. 
right? People have had this message for the last, again, like I say, 13 years, really, declining wages, you know, eroding quality in public services. My big bet, Michael, is this fundamentally. As long as house prices go up, the conservatives will be in government. Generally speaking, I think that's going to be a big rule of thumb. And look, we, we saw last month what happened, the biggest single increase in the value of homes in Britain in a month. So yes, of course, it's, it's dreadful for renters, for people on low incomes, people who have to use you know, universal credit and so on. That's not Tory voters, Michael. Tory voters are pensioners, homeowners, the ultra-rich. And even then, yes, you do get, like you say, this, the, the nature of their coalition has changed, and that's absolutely true. But you and I have met, and I'm sure many of our viewers and, and listeners have met, people who, who, who just weren't voting in their rational interest. And the idea that that suddenly changes, I think, is quite a big one, particularly in the absence of a, a distinct sell from Labour. You know, canvassing in, in 2019 in the local elections, I, I, I literally recall speaking to a guy in a wheelchair um, and he was talking to me about, you know, benefit cuts and from earlier on under Osborne and so on. Uh, and I said, oh, who are you voting for? And he said, I'm voting Tory because I want Brexit. And will that guy vote Labour next time? I don't know. You know, it didn't sound to me like he would from the quality of our conversation. He had completely lost confidence in Labour. However, like you say, maybe the intensity of what we're about to go through may make millions of people like him reconsider. You've brought up Labour, the opposition. Let's look at what they have been up to over the past couple of days. Um, to their credit, Labour have been vocal in opposing the £20 cut. There is clear water between the Tories and the Labour Party on that issue. But the party are giving off some odd messages on wages. This was Wes Streeting speaking to Sky News. You've got the Adam Smith Institute, not, you know, a right-wing think tank that not that I wouldn't normally agree with, but describing a Conservative Prime Minister as being economically illiterate, not least because they're seeing the beginnings of a wage price spiral that risks fueling inflation. That was Wes Streeting promoting the Adam Smith Institute's fears about higher wages. This is the guy tipped to be Labour's next leader. He was like, oh, great, the Adam Smith Institute have made an argument against higher wages. That's what I'm going to repeat on Sky News. What did you make of that intervention from, from Wes Streeting, Aaron? Oh, it was just puzzling, wasn't it? You get these sort of these cliched takes when people say, oh, we can't have a wage price spiral. And when they say wage price spiral, that word, set of words, it basically comes again from the 1970s oil crisis. That where, that's where it comes from. We didn't have a wage price spiral in the 1970s because workers were demanding more money out of nowhere. I mean, they were demanding more money. The inflation doesn't start with them, though. It starts with the fact that oil prices rocket after, I think, 73 because of the OPEC crisis. That's what starts inflation, you know, and setting it sky high. And then, of course, quite justifiably, workers want rising wages to keep up with the cost of living. And it feels, Michael, you know, like with so many times when we discuss things in British politics, Labour, the Tories, the political class, the media, they're all just basically speaking a set of cliches that we've had in our country since the 70s, 80s, 90s. And nobody can actually look at the facts and say, OK, this is happening. Here's what we should do. Or this is ideal. Wages going up is an undoubtedly good thing. I find it bizarre that Labour's response, for instance, to the shortage of HGV drivers is to say we should have more temporary workers on visas. We should have more precarious workers doing something temporarily and being hyper-exploited. Now, it doesn't mean I agree with the Tories' approach, but surely they could talk about a sector agreement between industry, between you know, the bosses, between the various supermarkets and companies that need this infrastructure, between the state, between trade unions. This is the ideal time to talk about a planned economy, 
and we have a Labour front bencher talking about wage price spirals. The one good thing that's happening right now is wages are going up. Now, do we want to keep the cost of goods as low as possible? Of course we do. And there are a bunch of things you can do to achieve that. It's going to be hard. No two ways about it. But the idea that you point to the Adam Smith Institute and say, they're calling him illiterate. Wow, that's a really big deal. They're going to call you illiterate. They're going to call any Labour government which wants a corporation tax where it presently is now. It's going up to 25% from 19%. If Labour do that, they'll call you economically illiterate. Why give those kinds of people credibility? Why legitimize them in the public debate? They've been absolutely wrong on every big question of political economy for the last 30, 40 years, Mr. Streeting. Why cite them? You know, ultimately, in the long term, you're moving that Overton window back to the right. You're making your own side far weaker. But I say your own side. Which side is he, really? Let's be honest. I don't think he actually has any original ideas. I don't think he really you know, wants to do anything. I think, yes, he'd like to spend slightly more on, on this. and He'd like to spend slightly more on that. But in terms of public ownership, in terms of remaking the economy, in terms of changing the relationship between capital and labor, no, I don't think there's anything distinct from between West Street and most, and most conservatives. I mean, I don't think they've even thought at that level, actually. He misunderstood what is the value of quoting a right-wing think tank if you're left-wing. Because that would make sense if you're saying this was, you know, you, you want to shift politics to the left. So Boris Johnson offers, you know, some really reactionary migration policy. And you say, this is even too right-wing for Migration Watch. So even the right-wing think tanks think this is too right-wing. Then you're saying, oh, what Boris Johnson is saying is so extreme even the right-wingers don't like it. What West Streeting is actually doing is Boris Johnson's job for him because Boris Johnson is pitching to the centre and West Streeting is saying, look, these right-wing think tanks think he's too left-wing. And Boris Johnson would be like, yes, that's because I'm pitching to the centre. That, that, that's what I was intending. That's what I was aiming for. So all seems incredibly confused. I'm um, talking about confused. Keir Starmer has also had an odd day. He's been on a visit to a Kellogg's factory in Trafford where he revealed an old nickname. Sophie Morris is a political reporter at Sky News. This afternoon, she tweeted the following. Labour leader Keir Starmer has been on a visit to the Kellogg's factory and has told staff his nickname is Special K. I've been dubbed Special K since I was born. K for Keir. That is all embarrassing enough, but as well as being cringeworthy, it appears it may have also been untrue. Inzaman Rashid is also a reporter at Sky. This morning, he tweeted... So Keir Starmer has today visited the massive Kellogg's UK factory in Trafford. I made a joke about Special K to him. He just didn't get it. So the timings here seem slightly odd. One journalist said, I made a joke to him in the morning about whether his name was Special K. He didn't get it. By the afternoon, Keir Starmer is joking that he's been called Special K since he was born. Confusing. I'll ask Aaron in a moment how he would square that circle. First of all, though, we do have footage of Inzamam Rashid trying a second time to make that joke to Sakir. Have you been dubbed Special K since your visit here? I've been dubbed Special K since I was born. Kia. K for Kia. <laughs> K for Kia. K for Kia. What's going on here? Do you think Keir Starmer has been called Special K since he was born? Or did he sort of take on a joke that he was told in the morning and then pretended he's always been called? I mean, the whole thing, obviously it's not particularly important, but it's still slightly baffling. I think it's, I think it's, if you're lying about such a small thing, I think it's particularly, I mean, that's, that's when you know somebody's a compulsive liar. You know, lying over Brexit and saying, I, I want us to be the party of Remain, then, then, then Brexit, then Remain, then Brexit. That's po politicking. Okay, he got it badly wrong. You could argue lots of people got it badly wrong. But lying over something this 
random um, and unnecessary, Michael. I mean, that's when you catch out the compulsive liars. It's when they're lying about things completely unnecessarily. As I said before on the, on the TWT debate, which is on YouTube, on their YouTube channel. I think it's got 16,000 views so now, right now, so it must be pretty good. You know, it's a smaller channel. You should watch that if you can. I think we're dealing with a pathological liar. I do. Um, and I think what happened here is probably a spad or somebody has said, oh, that's a really smart thing. Yeah, say that. He does this thing, Michael, where he says stuff and it's like, you said the complete opposite this morning on the radio. Or you said, you know, something completely odd to that yesterday on BBC Newsnight. You, you can't lie about, you know, lying. You know, he reminds me of Tony Montana in Scarface in one scene where he goes, even when I lie, I tell the truth. So, you know, we've got that example for me. The paradigmatic example is Keir Starmer being caught out by Andrew Marr on the BBC saying, you lied about this and your 10 pledges about what public ownership is. And he says, no, I'm not lying about lying. Even he lies about lying on television. So something very strange has gone on here, Michael. I think, you know, look, 30 years or 20 years in law, you enter politics. It's fair to say that these aren't two professions we normally associate with truth tellers. Uh, I, I think, and look, that, that's not unique to Keir Starmer. But if you're going to make your political brand about, you know, being honest and a man of integrity, I, I suspect it may have consequences. Let's go straight to our next story. The UK energy regulator Ofgem has indicated that gas bills could rise by up to £400 next spring in response to an unprecedented increase in wholesale prices. Alongside cuts to universal credit and a hike to national insurance, this increase in energy bills risks sharpening a cost of living crisis which could push millions into poverty as well as shaping our politics in the coming months and years. So, why are gas prices so high? How could we ease the pressure on household bills? And what does the gas shortage mean for efforts to tackle climate change? To find out, I'm joined by Laurie McFarlane, Economics Editor at Open Democracy. Thank you for joining us this evening. And can I get you to begin by explaining, um, for, you know, for a non-expert, why are we seeing this enormous rise in gas prices? So at the global level, we've had uh, a very cold, long winter across Europe which has meant that gas reserves that are usually higher than they are now have been depleted. Uh, we've also had maintenance on gas field operators, both in the North Sea, but also in other countries, being delayed maintenance that would have been carried out you know, last year, but because of the pandemic couldn't be, meaning that capacity isn't actually where it would normally be at this time of year. We've had soaring demand, particularly for liquefied natural gas from Asia and Latin America as the COVID recoveries kicked into gear. We've also had a couple of things closer to home. There was a big fire on a, a major subsea energy cable between the UK and France, which has cut off supplies from there. We've also had unusually, very unusually low winds in recent months, which has meant the energy from uh, wind power hasn't been as much as it has been, and therefore rising demand for gas to make up that shortfall. Now, on top of all of that, the UK is basically in a situation where we're significantly worse impacted than other countries. And that's mainly because, A, we're much more reliant on gas for our energy, for electricity, and for heating our homes than most of the European countries. We had a, a dash for gas uh, after the oil and gas, after the um, energy uh, sector was privatized in the 80s, which meant that we really sort of bet big on natural gas as an energy source. For a while, we could produce most of that domestically from the North Sea. But for about the last 10, 15 years, we've been importing around half of our gas supply uh, because we just don't produce enough for ourselves. Now, to compound that, most countries invest in storage capacity for gas, 
which means that when there is a global supply shock, you have a buffer reserve of, of storage, which means that you can smooth out supply shocks. Uh, the UK sold off its basically only major gas storage site back in 2017, which was off the North Yorkshire coast, which means that we basically don't have any gas storage at all, which means that we're very, very vulnerable and, and, and sensitive to global market shocks. So when all of this is happening, the price of gas is soaring. Uh, this feeds basically directly through to energy prices here much more than it does in other countries. And because we're much more reliant on natural gas than almost any other country in Europe, with the exception of a couple, uh, we're basically feeling this much more than other countries. What you hear from the left often is that if we nationalise the energy companies, you know, potentially there would have been more investment in in storage and potentially that could have protected consumers from higher prices. I mean, do, do you think if we had still publicly owned energy companies, that would have made a difference? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important when we're talking about energy to to be clear which part of the energy system we're talking about. Often when when we hear debates about energy, people think of the big six, which is the sort of the face of the energy industry, because that's who we interact with, sort of retail end. But of course, in energy, there's generation, there's then distribution and transmission, which importantly in this country are run by private monopolies. So National Grid uh, is a private monopoly. Um, and then there's the regional distribution networks, which are also private monopolies. Uh, and then there's the retail end, which is the companies that actually buy the energy on the wholesale markets and sell it to us and set tariffs and all the rest of it. Uh, and I think the real bit that doesn't get talked about enough is, of course, generation is crucial and we need to be rapidly moving away from fossil fuels, moving away from gas uh, and rapidly scaling up renewable energy as quickly as possible. But in terms of prices, clearly we are exposed to global gas prices. In the short term, there's not much we can do. But in terms of the distribution and transmission network, as I say, they, they are private monopolies. The only thing that's standing between them and exploiting customers is the regulator Ofgem, which is repeatedly failed to protect customers, basically. There's been research done recently by uh, Citizens Advice, which found that there's the enormous profits that are being made, both by National Grid and the regional uh, distribution networks, are mean that we're paying over a billion pounds too much every single year in our bills. Uh, the profit margins that these companies are making are, are very, very high indeed. Certainly, I do, I do think it's the case that if we're talking about more strategic ownership and control of our energy system, which I think is essential not just for this crisis, but also in terms of you know decarbonizing our, our energy system wholesale. We need to be talking about the transmission and distribution network uh, and the generation, not so much the retail side. You know, many of these companies that are going bust that we see in the news that people are talking about, lots of them basically they are a call center and an office and an admin billing service. That's about it. That's all they really do. They don't really do much else, and so strategically they're not really that important. So if we want to talk about, you know, how we actually take more ownership control over the energy sector, the real sort of big wins that I think we need to be talking about is around generation and distribution and uh, transmission, rather than the actual end question of who's actually sending us the bill. That's really interesting, because I, I have heard people say, you know, nationalization for these distribution companies is a bit of a red herring, and that, that makes a lot of sense of that. I want to talk about how this relates to climate change. The UK's energy minister, Kwasi Kwarteng, has suggested the current crisis makes the switch to renewables all the more urgent. In the short term, though, a gas shortage could lead to a switch to something even dirtier. The Financial Times reporting that Xi Jinping is ordering coal mines to boost production avoid energy shortages this winter in China. Um, Laurie, what's your view on how the current crisis might impact the fight against climate change? 
Well, it's not actually only China that's been firing up coal power stations. The UK has been doing that as well. Uh, you know, in, in response to this, we have fired up our, some of our remaining coal power stations, only providing about 2% of the total energy supply, though, because we really don't have that much coal capacity anymore. But clearly, yeah, this is one uh, result. China's yeah, directed its coal miners to ramp up production quite rapidly. Uh, in Europe, obviously, uh, Russia is an important player here in terms of the gas supply. Norway is now ramping up gas production. And so there is a real risk that this basically you know, puts derails or, or, or at least delays quite serious a- action on, uh, on climate change. And reality is there is no, because of the way that the UK has ended up, we've ended up in this position where we are very, very vulnerable. There's no real quick fix, unfortunately, in terms of you know moving overnight to a, to a clean system, but clearly it makes the the need to ramp up renewable energy investment you know all the more urgent. The other thing to talk about is that's energy supply. The other thing is obviously energy demand and how much energy we're actually using. Uh, and clearly, one of the absolute no-brainers that needs to be happening as soon as possible, it just isn't, is around energy efficiency, particularly in housing. You know, the UK has one of the least energy efficient housing stocks in the whole of Europe. You know, it's a win-win-win in the sense of not only will it, you know, help in terms of climate, not only will it reduce energy bills for households, but it also create, you know, thousands and thousands of jobs to, you know, rapidly uh, install energy efficiency things and heat pumps across all the housing stock in the UK. So this is a win-win-win. It's got to be one of the biggest no-brainers in politics today. And yet we're seeing, you know, the Tories, you know, delay and delay and, 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 you know, not do anything about it. Laurie McFarlane, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Super interesting. Let's go straight on to our next story. Newcastle United have had a tough few years with the once great team relegated twice in a decade. Fans had pointed blame squarely at the club's owner since 2007. That's Mike Ashley. And there have been consistent calls from the stands for the sports direct boss to sell up. On Thursday, Newcastle supporters had their wish come true. Ashley is selling and he's selling to the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. The Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, chaired by Mohammed bin Salman, is worth £320 billion, which means that overnight, Newcastle has become one of the richest clubs in the world. The BBC spoke to supporters in more detail about why they think the deal is a good thing. It's just sort of a bit of a relief. It's like, like a kid on Christmas morning, all my, my birthdays and all my Christmases all come at the same time. Just chuffed. I think it'll have a massive impact. Like, get the money put in the place, hopefully, and hopefully we'll win some trophies. <laughs> Such a big day for both the club, the city, um, you know, kind of everyone in, in the areas nearby. So Newcastle fans are very happy. Um, understandable for many reasons. This means that their club could become a contender for the Premier League if all this investment flows towards it. Of course... This deal is incredibly controversial because of the Saudis' appalling human rights record. That's both within the country and outside of the country. Um, Aaron, what should we make of this of this deal of this purchase? Well, I think it's you know it's important to say, Michael, that you know the Saudis are hugely ambitious, um, and you know when you think what they pulled off with nine eleven, uh, I I I really wouldn't put. Uh, Premier League title past them in the next couple of years. You know they do think big. You've got to give them that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you've shocked me there. No, I, didn't, I didn't have. Um... Uh, no, I mean the Saudis. Well, fifteen of the nineteen nine eleven attackers yeah. were Saudi. The relationship between uh, the so, Saudi state and nine eleven is is obviously controversial, but also that is controversial. Um, hasn't hasn't been investigated to the degree one 
uh, might hope it, it would have been. No, but also senior people close to the Saudi establishment, like the Bin Laden family, for instance, the largest construction sort of family in the, in the country. Of course, one famous Bin Laden was involved in that. However, joking aside, Michael, they are going to be far and away the most affluent club in, in world football, far and away. Bin Salman, I think, has a personal fortune of something like 300 billion. You've got uh, Aramco, you know, it's, it is the, the world's largest company. It's not a PLC, it's not publicly available to buy, but I mean, it's in the trillions in terms of its value. It's bigger than Amazon. It is a game changer. And in terms of, in terms of how this has happened, you know, it is difficult to make the argument against Ben Salman, Michael, when you have Qatari and you know, uh, UAE money in European football. It is very, very hard when you see what's going on with City and PSG. Where do you draw the line is, is the big question. So I can see why from a regulatory standpoint, this hasn't, you know, this, this has gone through and it hasn't been stopped. Because ultimately, you look at Abramovich with Chelsea, you, you can talk about other owners too. They're clearly involved in some quite shady things. But I think particularly with the Gatteries and the Emiratis, if you're looking at, for instance, the war in Yemen, the UAE has also been involved. The, the Gattari government has also allegedly bankrolled quite problematic, shall we say, uh, political, political causes abroad. Of course, Bin Salman is a bit more high profile with the uh, Khashoggi murder. You know, he was murdered in, a, in Istanbul by agents working for the Saudi secret services. Um, so uh, the Saudis are a level above when it comes to their brutality. Of course, a very regressive regime. You still have the death penalty. You might say, well, you have that in the United States and China too. That's fair enough. Until very recently, women couldn't drive in the country. They couldn't use 3G phones or 4G phones. They often couldn't go into malls where men went. That is slowly changing, but it's important to say, you know, when people try to build, for instance, an analog between Iran and Saudi Arabia, when it comes to civil liberties for women in Saudi Arabia over the last 60, 70 years, it's been a whole, you know, distinct case by itself. Probably, probably Afghanistan is obviously in a, on a sort of similar sort of uh, category, but nobody else fundamentally. And these people are being allowed in at the very top British industry, and that's what football is, the Premier League is, at the very top of the Premier League. So, uh, of course, we, we should have major misgivings about it. What's the political response? You know, I do feel like actually when it came to football ownership, fan ownership, supporters having a role and influence in their clubs, that felt like it was sort of coming up a bit when we had, of course, the, uh, the Super League debacle uh, just a few months ago. This is a world away from that. You have, you know, Newcastle United fans overjoyed and rightly so, Michael. You know, they've had this guy, Mike Ashley, the Cockney Mafia, running their club for a long time, more than a decade, going nowhere fast. They came second in the mid-1990s, but they've not really enjoyed sustained success, winning trophies and so on for a very long time. So I understand why they're happy. But I think more broadly, what this tells us about Premier League Football as an industry in Britain and fundamentally British public life and how our economy works and whose interests is quite sad and it's quite revealing because it's not just football. You know, people like Ben Salman are deeply implicated and invested in all manner, you know, all, all parts of the economy, all manner of industries. Very little is said, of course, because that money comes in handy. You mentioned other owners and, and how this compares. We can look at the top five richest clubs in the Premier League. Um, so, number one is now. Newcastle, owned by the Saudi Public Investment Fund, who are worth $320 billion. Of course, they're not going to invest all of that in, in Newcastle, but that's how, how deep their pockets are. Man City is owned by Sheikh Mansour. Um, he's worth £22.9 billion. Mansour is Deputy Prime Minister of the United Arab Emirates and Chair of its Sovereign Wealth Fund. Chelsea, 
you probably know, is owned by Roman Abramovich. He's worth almost 10 billion. He was the Premier League's first multi-billionaire owner buying Chelsea in 2003. He, again, as you probably know, is a Russian oligarch. He made his money through buying up Russian state assets um, after the Soviet Union collapse. So basically stealing from the Russian people. Arsenal is owned by Stan Kroenke, who is worth £6 billion, although he hasn't invested that much in the club. So their fans really don't like him. And Aston Villa at number five is owned by Nassif Sawiris who is an Egyptian construction magnate. 200 million has been spent on players over the past two summers. So Villa fans probably more pleased with that guy. Aaron, it is kind of interesting, isn't it, that all of the richest clubs are rich thanks to a foreign billionaire. I'm not especially an economic nationalist or whatever, but it does seem to put Britain in an interesting light, which is that if you want to have a successful team, you have to just pray that there is going to be some incredibly wealthy guy somewhere in the world who will swoop in and and buy it you know all, all the funding the investment has to come from outside on the whim of international billionaires i wouldn't entirely agree with that uh, if you look at manchester united for instance bought by the glazers in 2005 actually yes of course they won the european champions league in the late 2000s yes they won a title i think as recently as 2013 but actually michael them being bought by billionaires and a debt leverage takeover left them worse off the Glazers have since taken a billion out of the club. And so, yes, there are many instances of, of clubs being able to compete. Manchester City, Chelsea, maybe people watching this who support those clubs won't like me saying it. Historically, not big clubs. I think before Abramovich buys Chelsea, they don't win a title since the 1950s. Manchester City, you know, I remember being a bit younger and watching them in the League One playoff final with Sean Gota and Paul Dickov up front. You know, they, they, you wouldn't associate that with, you know, the kinds of players they have now. So you're generally right there, Michael, but I wouldn't say it's entirely accurate. You know, Manchester United would be much better off. They'd be more affluent. They'd be able to attract better players if they hadn't been bought by the Glazers. They were a very successful business uh, before that. And, and that's because primarily, yes, you've got gate receipts, merchandise, global brand. But the money involved in the Sky deals, Michael, is, is astronomical. And that's fundamentally where the money comes from for these clubs. Yes, Man City and Chelsea spend extraordinary sums of money. But actually, Man City as an investment probably works. They've probably made, if they want to sell Man City tomorrow as a brand in terms of the value of the club, it's probably gained in value. Equally with Newcastle, Michael, I think Ashley bought it for 130 million. It's just been sold for 305 million. Of course, 305 million is, a, is an extraordinary amount of money, but they could invest a couple of hundred million in the, in the stadium, the training facilities, and the, and, the, and the team and make it compete, let's say 250 million make it compete for the top four, get in the Champions League a few times. The club is suddenly much more valuable purely as a result of the gate receipts, merchandise, but TV rights because they're now in Europe's biggest club competition. So yes and no. There's an immense amount of money in football, which isn't to do with the oligarchs. The point is if you want to get that money, you're going to generally speaking need their money as a launch pad. That wasn't the case with Manchester United, however. Equally in, in Germany, Bayern Munich, effectively owned by the community. It's effectively owned by supporters. It's as successful as any English club in Europe over the last 20 years. Ajax, a bit different because the Dutch league isn't as competitive. Immensely successful, very similar model. Uh, Barcelona and Real Madrid, a bit more complex. I mean, they are effectively bankrupt, Barcelona, but a very different model. They weren't dependent on oligarchs. They were somewhat supporter-owned with Real Madrid. Also, there's a big element of support from the from the royal family, fundamentally.
So, you know, th- 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 there's, a, there's a bit more of a complicated story there. But what I would say is the most successful clubs in Europe, let's look at them over the last 20 years, Barcelona, Bayern Munich, Real Madrid, none of those teams needed a multi-billionaire to get where they were. Uh, if you are a smaller club, you know, I'm, I'm from Bournemouth. If AFC Bournemouth wants to be a top four team, yes, they're going to need a billionaire to get there. Yes. But that isn't always, that isn't always how it works. No, that's interesting. I, I was thinking of it as sort of, you know, them just giving all their pocket money to this club. But you're right. It, it is also a, you know, a valuable investment that potentially will make as much money as they've put into it. I want to look at one more perspective from a fan who actually talks about what's, what this will mean more broadly than just in terms of football. Sam Fender is a singer-songwriter from Newcastle. He's a big deal. He's got a number one album and he spoke to BBC Breakfast the morning after attending celebrations outside St. James's Park. Well, we went up to, we, we did Jules Holland and then went straight up to uh, St. James's and my, my saxophone player, Johnny, got on the statue and started uh, playing local hero and 5,000 Geordies just started singing along. Um, and because I, of the club takeover? Yeah, because Ashley's out, yeah. And uh, and everyone passed us, everyone I've seen. I did about a 1,000 selfies, got pro- mobbed and they gave it, but everyone was absolute class and they gave us a lot of cans and I'm really hungover. I'm really, really hungover. Appreciate your honesty on that. Song. But, uh, but I mean, you know, these things happen, don't they? Does it feel like a massive moment for the club? Yeah. Uh, whoa, I feel like I'm on talk sport. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's obviously quite a contentious situation as well, though, you know what I mean? But um, I'm just really happy for the fans and I'm happy for the city and I'm happy for what like might come of it probably economically for our place, for our, for our town. That was a very charming interview. Aaron, what I wanted to talk to you about there, though, is not going on on BBC Breakfast and saying you're hungover. And, you know, it kind of went viral for that reason. But what interested me was the way he was talking about how this wasn't just a big deal for football fans, but for Newcastle itself. Like, he thinks mm. this will bring economic development to, to Newcastle. And, you know, to use Boris Johnson's phrase, levelling up by attracting Saudi billionaires. Do you think he's right? Oh, 100%. I mean, if you look at the, the historic winners of the English championships, now it's the Premier League, it used to be just called, you know, Division One. Historically, it was towns and cities outside of London. You know, London clubs historically weren't that competitive. So you've got, obviously, the Northwest historically, Liverpool, Manchester, Everton. You've got the Northeast, Sunderland, Newcastle. have got more titles between them than people realise. Burnley, Wolverhampton, Portsmouth have got two titles. Historically, the Southeast wasn't really the powerhouse of English football. Uh, and, and that changed a little bit. You know, you now have in, in London massive clubs, Tottenham, Chelsea, Arsenal. I mean, Arsenal were a bit bigger, but they weren't on a level with Manchester United or Liverpool. Um, West Ham playing at this huge stadium now. They've won a European trophy historically, but again, not a massive, massive club. Uh, and there was a concentration of power to, to London clubs and you know, to, to some of the older giants like Manchester United and, and to Liverpool. And I, I feel like there's a good way of understanding Brexit, which is towns that historically had really good football teams who performed well 20, 30, 40 years ago and now are in sort of League One. I think Derby. Derby in the mid-70s made a European Cup semi-final under Brian Clough. Now the club's basically facing bankruptcy. You know, Derby is economically left behind. That's the exact kind of place where they look at the football club as a totem of civic pride. And it's been decimated as much as the local economy. And so you can see why somewhere like Newcastle, I mean, Newcastle's done immeasurably better than Derby in recent decades, but you can see why somewhere like Newcastle 
it is everything. It's the quintessence of the city. But at the same time, Michael, also, you know, I mentioned it earlier, the Premier League is this, is this huge, huge global industry. People will talk about Newcastle if they finish in the top four, because every week, hundreds of millions of people around the world will be watching Newcastle United games. You know, my dad's a taxi driver in Bournemouth. Bournemouth were in the Premier League for four years. They're top of the championship. They might go back next year, hopefully. And you would get people go to watch Bournemouth every week from Norway or wherever, just, just tourists. They want to see, you know, Manchester United and they don't want to go to Old Trafford and Bournemouth's a bit different. And people around the world, you go somewhere, you know, you might meet somebody and you'd say, I'm from Bournemouth. Ten years ago, they've never heard of Bournemouth, but because they're in the Premier League, they know who Bournemouth are. So in terms of building a, a stronger sense of place, in terms of attracting money to the area, in terms of building its brand, having a really successful Premier League club makes a massive difference. Now, Newcastle was already, was already in the Premier League, but going up another level, of course, you know, if you're trying to attract Chinese students, if you're trying to attract, you know, Indian entrepreneurs, you've obviously got a vibrant local economy there already. You know, you've got University of Durham, you've got a bit of a tech sector in Newcastle. It's huge. Of course, it's huge, Michael. It's massive. It's, it's, a, it's a really big thing for them in Newcastle. And importantly, you know, we're not pontificating about the Saudis. Just the fact they've left Mike Ashley behind is, you know, is, is good enough, I think, to get absolutely wasted and party. Because, you know, on the one hand, yes, you've got somebody like Ben Salman, deeply immoral man, part of, a, uh, I think, an evil regime in Saudi Arabia. What kind of owner do you want? Do you want somebody like that putting money into your club? I mean, I personally want neither. But do you want somebody like that putting money into your club? Or people like the Glazers, nowhere near as bad, but who take money out of the club and make you less successful, as they're doing with Manchester United, or has, as they have done with Manchester United. They've taken more than a billion out of the club. I think that's an arguable. So, yeah, it's a massive, massive thing. And you, and you can see how Johnson might sort of say this is part of his leveling up agenda. You know, the fact that you're going to have a big club in the Northeast competing for honours. Yes, Newcastle were doing that in the mid-90s, but over a long, sustained period of time, that's not happened for, wow, 60, 70, 80 years. Let's go to some comments, lots of relevant ones. Nicola Curtin with 20 quid. Thank you very much. As a football fan, I really thought that when the Euro Super League idea appeared and protests happened, fans would keep these protests going. Big money speeding up the death of football in this country, in England in particular, with likely long-term survivors being the top six in England. We need to get corporations and billionaires out of owning clubs in this country or they are all going to die out. They're using clubs as cash cows. A lot of transfer fees could pay off many countries' national debts. They are obscene. We must drastically reduce transfer fees. Very interesting to compare this to sort of the politics around the Super League because at the time, lots of people read it, including us sometimes, as sort of this big revolt against these these big billionaire owners who were making these decisions in a non-democratic way. Now we're seeing scenes of people saying, thank God, a really rich billionaire has, has bought our club. So there's some mixed messages going on here. Presumably, I mean, because football fans don't actually have that much agency in this situation. So you are in a bit of a rock and a hard place. Finally, as well, Michael, on the, on the Newcastle United, on the Newcastle United stuff, I've got a good friend, actually the best man at my weddings in Newcastle United fan is Geordie. And he didn't, he didn't just start supporting them in the mid-90s mid because of Kevin Keegan. And, you know, when he said to me, he's very political and he was, you know, like, oh, I feel bad. You know, this, this is obviously brilliant news for the club, but it's terrible. And I just think, you know, enjoy it while you can. We, we saw in the, in the uh, uh, mid-noughties, Portsmouth Football Club had a, a multi-millionaire, you know, millionaire owner who was meant to take them to, to even greater heights. They had Milan Mandaric. He sold it to somebody else. He was meant to build a new stadium. The guy was a, was a, was a con man. He was a fraudster. 
So, you know, it doesn't always work out well. I think it's fair to say that won't be happening with Bin Salman, though. Next story. The BBC has released a five-part documentary on Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. It's called Blair and Brown, The New Labour Revolution. Got extensive interviews with Brown and Blair and lots of people who worked with them, lots of their allies. I've only watched the first three episodes so far. I can't vouch for the final two, but so far, everyone speaking has taken it as an absolute given that New Labour was a good thing, that they had to come in, take over that party and defeat the left. Um, there, there was no one giving an alternative perspective. Despite that, though, there are still moments I found revealing. This is Tony Blair describing the reason he got into politics. I read law, which was a mistake because I found it very boring as an academic subject. But by my late 20s, I was full on and flat out as a lawyer. I'd never been to the House of Commons. And I always remember going into the, the lobby into this vast, cavernous, marble lobby. And it was a very odd thing. Just the moment I stepped in, I thought, I've got to be here. That kind of moment of epiphany, if you like, that this was what I was going to do. Very strong. My precious vibe. Blair need to work under the beautiful roof of the House of Commons to feed his ego. Aaron, what did you make of that? I mean, the critique of Tony Blair is that he didn't believe in anything. The reason he got into politics wasn't to help people. It was to feed his own ego. And there he is, you know, just saying outright, I'd never been to the House of Commons before. You know, he hadn't lobbied anyone before. Presumably he'd never been there on a protest. He, he went inside. He saw this grandiose roof, presumably reminded him a bit of Balliol in, in Oxford. And he was like, I have to be here. This is my calling. My calling is to be in the heart of power in Britain. It's, um, it's terrifying, Michael. Uh, looking at it from a sort of intellectual level, you know, Ralph Milliband and, and Leo Panitch, who recently passed away, theorised parliamentary socialism in this country as having, as having certain problems. And they viewed the Labour Party as a limited vehicle for socialism because Labour Party MPs view themselves as parliamentarians first and socialists seconds at best. I mean, Blair wasn't even that. Um, which is to say that they have a sense of duty and obligation to the British state before their party or before even the working class or their constituents. And I think that video, Michael, conclusively and comprehensively um, sums that up. And, that, and that's a great piece of primary documentary evidence for the Miliband hypothesis. Ralph, I should say, Michael, not Ed or David. As I say, the documentary didn't include many people critical of Tony Blair. I mean, I can't think of anyone who was outright critical of Tony Blair, allies and colleagues. But the egotism of the then Prime Minister was mentioned by Richard Wilson. He was Britain's top civil servant between 1998 and 2002. Yeah, nice to see you. Mrs Thatcher knew that she was a remarkable figure, but she didn't dwell on it too much. There was a much bigger element of ego in Blair. Blair was always exploring who he was, about how far he could push the boundaries of his own achievement. Uh, and I think that was privately, inwardly, the centre of his ambition. That sounds like a very self... Does that make sense? I mean, I'm... Absolutely self-obsessed. Hmm. 
am I going to say about that? Yes. I think he was, I think he was. Whew. I think he was the center of his universe. I think he was the center of his universe. I mean, you can kind of see in, in that interview and Tony Blair's egotism. They talk elsewhere in the documentary. There's people who, you know, he, he thought he was the Messiah, Jesus-like quality. Sometimes it worked to, to great effect when it came to the Good Friday Agreement. They were discussing that in you know, episode two, I think. But it led to complete disaster. And Aaron, I mean, it really does, you know, this idea of having a leader who is just obsessed with constantly maximizing their own, own impact on the universe. You can kind of see the direct linkage between that attitude and, and the Iraq war and all of the biggest disasters of New Labour, can't you? Well, I'd even go a bit further, Michael. I would say that there's, there's really no legacy of New Labour that's positive in the long term. Now, New, New Labour did some very good things, um, particularly in its first term. Devolution, I mean, that's a good legacy, but not if you like the union. Um, I, I don't, but I presume you know, most people do who are big fans of New Labour. Um, you've got the fact they introduced proportional representation for European elections, the European Parliament. That allows the rise of UKIP. Arguably, that sets the foundation for Brexit. Um, so th those are two big errors. Uh, you've got, obviously, the minimum wage, which is really positive. But other than that, you know, massive investment into education and the NHS, which, of course, was fantastic, but it's been rolled back in the last 11 years. So then you haven't really got a long-term legacy. You know, like from, from 45 to 51 with Labour, you have the welfare state, the NHS. We still have it today. Not perfect, not intact, but we still have it. You look at Margaret Thatcher, she completely transformed the, the national housing market. She completely changed the provision of things like energy, water, public transport. Those are really long-lasting, enduring legacies. Blair's isn't. And I think that's partly because of that, that sense that his own political sort of representation mattered more than the project. Uh, and I, I think ultimately that's why somebody like that, if you want to win and you want to change things for the long term and be remembered in a hundred years time, somebody like that actually has real downfalls and downsides as a leader. So yes, of course, you could, he won three elections. I mean, what's the long-term legacy of that really? Failed foreign policy, devolution, fine, minimum wage. That's kind of it. That's, that is really kind of it. And Blairism as an orthodoxy and how it embraced financialization, the city of London, Again, completely found out in 2008. And of course, it was better to have Labour in charge doing that stuff between 97 and 2010 than the Tories. I don't think anybody on the left would dispute that, apart from the foreign policy stuff. But the idea that he changed Britain forever, he's a titan like Churchill or Attlee or Thatcher, it's nonsense. You know, it's not, it's not remotely true. You can't even really compare him to Wilson and Roy Jenkins because some of the stuff they did around, you know, liberal values in the 60s, death penalty divorce, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's more of a legacy there even. So even though he won three times, he's quite an insubstantial politician, Michael. And I think that's because his priority was always, how's Tony Blair represented here rather than what's in the long-term interest of the political project I'm attached to. And you're going to get that with politicians who don't put their party first or don't have a certain project in mind. He hated the Labour Party. The Labour Party was a vehicle for Tony Blair. And ultimately, that meant they lost many members, many votes, and even the political legacy, like I've said, wasn't very substantial. As I said, I don't think the documentary is incredibly well done, but it is interesting how long they talk to Tony Blair for and how little you hear about what he actually wants to do beyond saying, I want to modernize the country. It's very, you know, very abstract. To what end? In what way? Um, let's go to our final story. 
Labour MP Rosie Duffield has found herself the subject of increasing controversy in the party due to her comments on transgender rights. Duffield's repeated claim that only women can have a cervix has been deemed transphobic because it ignores trans men. And in the past, she's also appeared on live streams with Graham Linehan, who has likened the use of puberty blockers to Nazi eugenics programs. He's also been deemed so extreme, or his tweets have been deemed so extreme, he's been banned from the platform. It's all very unpleasant, but what is upsetting for some is an opportunity for others. The Tories, obviously wanting this row to continue, have urged Rosie Duffield to leave Labour and join the Conservatives. The Times report... The Labour MP for Canterbury has been told through informal Tory channels that the party's door is open to her should she decide to cross the floor of the Commons. A Conservative source said that Duffield had been offered support privately and told that the Tories were supportive of her stance on trans issues. For her part, this is what Rosie Duffield told reporters. At times when abuse is really rife on social media, we do support each other and it's really nice to get support from all colleagues in Parliament. But I'm not about to jump ship. I'm Labour through and through. A couple of things to say about this. So when the Conservatives say we agree with your position, that's what's actually, that's quite scary here. And um, we've spoken about this on previous shows when Sajid Javid tweeted to say that to suggest not all people with a cervix are women or not. It's not only women who have cervixes. He says that's a denial of science. Actually, it was Sajid Javid denying science and the policy of the NHS, which is that trans men are not women and they may have a cervix, depending on what, what stage of, of, of transition um, they are in. Obviously, not everyone transitions in all of the ways anyway. Um, the other issue here, though, I think is this is probably just the Tories trying to cause problems. There was a story in the Mail on Sunday last weekend saying there are some MPs sort of thinking about crossing the floor. No one has really been able to name those MPs. This is the first time actually a name has been put to those rumours. But Aaron, what do you think is going on here? Do you think Rosie Duffield might actually be considering joining the Conservatives? Or do you think this is just that the Conservatives really like it when trans issues are in the headlines because they think this is an issue which might divide Labour's base? So they want to stoke up as much controversy as possible. It's hard to see her running as a Tory candidate just because it was a marginal. Labour never won it until 2017, which again is puzzling. You know, Rosie Duffield will talk about what a mistake Corbynism was. Canterbury literally never went Labour until 2017. Never. Now, of course, Rosie Duffield will think that's all up to her. You can't say the guy's a terrible leader. It was all such a mistake. The party literally never won that seat ever until he was on the scene. Very strange. I mean, look, the people that say this stuff aren't the most intelligent, are they? Um, she won in 2019 <clears throat> in quite tough circumstances because of support from Lib Dems. Lib Dems lent Labour their vote because Brexit was the overriding issue. However, it's historically been a Tory seat. You know, it was uh, Julian Brazer which won it in 2015. Good majority, I think, eight, nine thousand, nine thousand, eight thousand. Um, so the Tories will definitely be back, and the Lib Dems won't be lending their votes like they were uh, in 2019 because Brexit's less of an issue. Well, there'll still be <clears throat> there'll still be some tactical voting, I think. So it's an interesting one. I, I personally don't think she'll run for the Tories. No, simply because her whole pitch in 2019 was, "I'm here to stop the Tories. I'm the anti-Tory candidate." Where I do think those three people were, 
And, and she may have been one of them. It's, it's clearly the right-wing press stirring a little bit of shit. But where I thought they were, in my mind anyway, was politicians who were in Labour Tory marginals in the West Midlands, in the Northeast. So again, I'm not saying it's him. Somebody like Pat McFadden, very much on the right economically, Wolverhampton MP, I think he's got a majority of, say, 1,500. Labour are going to really struggle to, to keep that seat. Even if the national picture is somewhat better, what we've seen over the last year, 18 months, is that the West Midlands and the Northeast are going to be very, very difficult for them. So I thought people like him uh, were a better fit in terms of crossing the floor to the Conservative Party. Like I say, I, th I, I think those people do exist, but I think it's, you know, it's the Mail on Sunday also stirring a little bit. And I presume Rosie Duffield was a part of that. I don't think, well, who knows? I don't think she would be joining the Tory party. Then again, she might overstep the mark in the future and she might, you know, come under real pressure and Keir Starmer might have to withdraw the whip or suspend her or something like that. I mean, he should have done that already, but whatever. Um, he certainly should have disciplined her, Michael. I know you'd, for instance, we've said this before, I don't think she should have lost the whip. She should have been disciplined. Um, you, you need to give people chances to, to, to sort of apologize and make amends. Uh, but that, even that hasn't happened. She hasn't been disciplined yet. But if she was, then I think, yeah, then it's very, then it's very plausible, right? And Rosie Duffield's another one, Michael. You know, no politics. She, she, she seems to be in politics for Brand Duffield. Look, I'm sure if somebody's watching this, I'll get attacked and they'll say, oh, you know, what a terrible thing to say. I mean, that, that's just my impression. Um, uh, I could be wrong. There's one more tweet I want to go to before we end. This was a tweet I read this morning. It's from Alex Gawley. In my job, I get tested twice a week, avoided it for 19 months, double jabbed. And today, on the morning of my 24th birthday, my first message is from the NHS. I have COVID, lol. Just typical. Um, and then he says, I hope this warrants me a happy birthday shout out tonight on the show. And it does. Um, happy birthday, Alex Gawley. I'm sorry that you've got COVID-19 on your 24th birthday. Fingers crossed, it will be very mild. Um, Aaron Bastani, we're going to wrap up there. Thank you so much for spending an hour and 10 minutes with me on your valuable Friday night. My pleasure, Michael. It's always a pleasure. Uh, people uh, always tell me that Tisky Sour is going from strength to strength. I'm just grateful to be a part of it, Michael. I'm grateful to have you as a part of it too. All right, let's end this loving. Um, we will be back on Monday at 7 p.m., I presume, God willing. If you haven't already, subscribe to the channel. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.